you just want to check boxes, whether it's higher education, whether it's marriage, whether it's the nice car, the nice house, you can check the boxes all you want. But at the end of the day, how empty is your life going to be? There's no purpose. You're just checking boxes and looking for the next box to check. The following is a conversation with Dr. Brian Adams. He's a professor of finance at the University of Portland. Finance is one of the many majors a student may choose. So I wanted to ask Dr. Brian Adams, why might a student pursue a finance degree? What are the career opportunities that exist on the other side? And how might a finance degree help in other areas of one's life? We also had the chance to discuss the ever-changing world of higher education, where, for example, students are feeling an increasing need to self-censor their own beliefs and ideas. And additionally, does the value of the MBA still exist in our current climate? This is the Better You Podcast. My name is Michael McKelvey. To support this podcast, please subscribe. And now, Dr. Brian Adams. Your name is Brian Adams. Mm-hmm. True? True. Okay. <laughs> this is Brian Adams, true or false? True, but it's spelled differently, yes. So true? Yes. Okay. I just wanted to clear up the confusion there. I was just a little confused. I was, I was a little confused. Um, multi-talented person, Brian yeah, Adams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not the same. Not yeah. the same. Not, not quite the same, the same but yeah. okay. And okay. luckily we're past that uh, age where most people now don't remember that singer, thankfully. Yeah. I can move on. I love that song. <laughs> I love that song. It, it creates wonderful feeling. But on a serious note here, yep. okay, so um, you've been in education at least higher education teaching now for a couple decades, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh, Michael. Yeah. It, 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 over a couple decades. Yeah. Okay. Why might somebody want to pursue a finance degree or at least take finance classes in today's current climate? Yeah. Great question. Well, well first is my recommendation to all college students is you need to be as diverse as possible with your curriculum. You need arts and sciences. And finance is definitely more on the science side. But what a lot of people don't understand with finance is there are quantitative aspects and there's as many qualitative aspects too. So the great thing about finance is it kind of bridges that arts and sciences. There's a lot of art in finance and there's a lot of science in finance. Most people just view the math and the spreadsheets and think, oh, that's all it is. Just this nerdy world where you crunch the numbers and then you figure out what your best investment is. And no, there's so much about finance. It's about communication, about talking with people, understanding people, understanding what their needs are and what their goals are and helping them meet their goals, whether it's within a corporation or at a personal level. That's what I love about finance is that it bridges so many different areas, requires people to think, requires people to have an open mind and be willing to think about different alternatives and then to work through different scenarios to come up with a good strategy. I think th th that type of skill is necessary in anything you do in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned being able to communicate the numbers and there really seems to be two individuals in finance there's more <laughs> of like a head down role from my perspective somebody that is very much within the numbers and maybe explaining the numbers to people that at least have some idea how the numbers work uh, we would say that's more of an analyst yeah and then at the same standpoint there's the individual who seems to be in charge of communicating the numbers 
to somebody that maybe isn't in the financial realm. And I would say both of those skill sets, you can carve your own pathway off of. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess with, you know, the coursework, you know, you, you, you have an opportunity as a kid to choose, you know, an infinite amount of pathways. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of different majors there. Why might somebody, I guess, pursue a finance degree? Well, they're interested in finance, right? That, that's who I want in my class, somebody who's motivated to learn finance because you, you, you get that mix. And we've been in, in college classrooms numerous times. And in any college classroom, regardless of what the subject is, you have students there that want to be there and students are there because they have to be there. Mm -hmm. That classroom works so much better as a learning environment when most of the students want to be there. So I want the students in my class who want to be there, who want to learn about finance, whether they're a finance major or not. We understand there's so many financial decisions you have to make in your life regarding, um, you know, partnership, uh, just, you know, living with people. How do you live with people platonically and beyond that, uh, you know, sh shelter, um, savings for for uh, short term goals, investments for long term goals. There's so many financial decisions we have to make. I think everybody should be required to take finance classes, not just in college, but in high school, junior high and even take it down to elementary school. Mm -hmm. Finance should be a part of the curriculum all the way through because it is such an important facet of our lives. Yeah. The numbers you know, both from like a personal financial standpoint, but also, you know, something I've come to realize is our world is essentially made up of numbers. You mm -hmm. know, math in a lot of ways seems to be what governs the world, um, whether that's from a physics standpoint, you know, or from a number standpoint within how some business is operating. And so being able to, you know, kind of break things down financially into those numbers, I think is, is critically important. Um, and that kind of brings up the second question I have is, you know, just in my time, mm -hmm. I have seen so much of the world become automated in ways that it wasn't even just a decade ago. Yeah. And as we stare at the financial industry, there are many people that say, okay, so much more of it is automated now. You know, you can have ETFs that essentially build out a passive portfolio for you. Yep. So what's the role of a portfolio manager anymore? What's the role of all of the traders and the analysts anymore? Um, you have other roles for companies where they maybe have some software replacing what some financial analyst previously did. So I guess as the environment in the world shifts and more becomes automated in the financial spectrum and financial world, just like many other worlds, um, where is the role for the human from a career perspective <laughs> is you look outwards and kids maybe are considering this as a major, where is that role for the human? Oh gosh, that's a great question. So a, a couple different ways that I talk to students about this. Number one, I when we talk about finance on the first day that I have students in class, I say, this is like a foreign language class, whether this is Spanish, French, Japanese, Chinese, uh, doesn't matter. It, it is trying to figure out how to talk in these terms, using these phrasings, using these numbers, which a lot of people don't understand that it, you have to get immersed in the language of finance to get comfortable and understand and get your arms around basic financial concepts. They think, oh, it's, it's just about the numbers. And yeah, the numbers are part of the language. They're the objective part of the language. But like, well, like I said, there's so much about finance 
that is subjective, that, that needs that human approach. And all these models we're talking about, these robo-advisors, these um, a- asset allocation models to build portfolios, they're based on assumptions. All models are based on assumptions. All pricing models are based on assumptions. And we have this conversation all the time. We're, we're going to have it today in my finance class about market efficiency. Mm-hmm. Having a discussion about market efficiency is is a really difficult discussion to have because nobody knows the true value of anything right now. You have Mm -hmm. a good guess, and and, and we can give a range of where the value of any asset should be, but you you don't really know. It's a guesswork. And after the fact, we can look back and say, okay, yeah, that was undervalued, that was overvalued. But right now in this space and time, we are beholden to models, and those models are based on assumptions. And those assumptions are usually going to be based on where the meaty part of the distribution is. That bell curve, that model is going to be based on averages. What is the most likely outcome? Well, how many people do we know that aren't average, you know, that that are in, in different uh, parts of their life doing way different things and, and need a more subjective approach and also need that communication level where people understand and can link, okay, you're here, this model's over here, I can find a way to link it together so we can get the best type of financial management for you that's not just going to be this cookie cutter approach. And mm-hmm. we've heard that in, in marketing before. And a lot of times people use that, you know, we're not going to give you a cookie cutter approach, but in honesty, most financial models are cookie cutter approaches. Mm-hmm. So you need that human to come in and say, okay, the model says this, but maybe we should tweak it a little bit because mm-hmm. you have a kid that has special needs or your husband wants to go back to college or you have a, a parent that needs to come live with you. And a lot of those are common, but not common enough to be built into models. So that's where you need the human to help you figure out those those issues that, that are more specific to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. As the world has become more efficient, in a lot of ways, like that's how technology has produced more jobs and just more in general, more opportunity, mm-hmm. more capital is through increasing efficiency. And you look at the financial sphere and as yes, maybe there's less opportunities in the active space in the way that they're man- it might have been 20, 30 years ago managing portfolios because mm-hmm. there's just less overall active portfolios. Mm-hmm. There's maybe new roles and opportunities that have popped up simultaneously as markets have become more efficient and as we become more efficient at managing just people's financial lives, right? I mean, without the tools that I have available from a financial planning stance today, Mm -hmm. the software that I have available, the tools that I can use that were created over the past, really last decade, I would not be able to have the same effect in helping people. And so those tools have made me more efficient, which has allowed me to provide a different type of value than maybe somebody could have provided 20 years ago when it was more commission-based, when it was more about just, hey, I'm going to build a portfolio and that's the value for you. Yeah. Today it's, okay, I actually have this tool that can review your estate plan and see the gaps within your estate plan. And there's some serious gaps we have to talk about. I have this tool that can review your previous tax returns and see that you're not maximizing your HSA. You maybe aren't taking advantage of some deductions that you could be taking advantage of. And mm-hmm. so you can kind of play a more holistic stance. Absolutely. And again, 
that's where that human is somehow more involved in ways that you just can't project out. So it's, I think it's easy to see where the jobs can diminish over time, the ones today, but it's difficult to connect the dots looking forward and say, okay, here's where the new jobs will be to replace it, you know? True. Um, but I find that you, you mentioned a line there on uh, assumptions mm -hmm. and every model is based on an assumption. Yeah. And you actually, you teach a class, uh, I think you mentioned it as your favorite class, um, at least from what I read, I think the name of it was Financial Institutions. Financial uh, Markets and Institutions. Yeah, financial that's my Markets. Class. Yes. And then there was another one on portfolio management, Applied I believe. Applied portfolio management. That kind of leads into my next, I guess, question. And do you teach any graduate classes, any graduate level classes? Yeah. I used to only be grad okay. classes. And now, since I stepped away from the associate dean role on the grad side, I'm, I'm more on the, on the undergrad side right okay. now. Okay. So I think there's an opportunity cost with everything. And undoubtedly, when you're looking at MBA, there's the time and the money that's associated with it, right? Unless your yep. company maybe is paying for it, there's at least the time. As always, it's always a question of how much time or you know, financial investment we're going to have to put towards something. That's the opportunity cost, right? So I think as a lot of folks look at the MBA, it's kind of been under attack in some ways of you know, is this worthwhile? Does this, yeah. does this make sense for yep. me to pursue? So I guess I'm curious as somebody who used to uh, speak to graduate students and teach graduate students, how might somebody pursue an MBA and waste their money and time <laughs> in the process? Yeah. And how might it be worthwhile for someone? I went through the MBA program not knowing why I was going through the MBA program. I went through the MBA program <laughs> because I could uh, my uh, employer was paying for it and I had the time because I, I was single at the time and I was out of, you know, undergrad and I had the time to give. So I went through the MBA program, did very well and, and came out the other side and it's like, okay, why, why did I do that? And it, it's just been since, uh, over, over the last 10, 15 years where I really started thinking more about graduate business programs and why they're there. And I did some research and the MBA was created as a critical thinking curriculum that m was mostly geared towards those students who weren't business undergrads to come back and get a college education in the critical thinking skills you need for business strategy. And, and that makes complete sense, right? When you think about the MBA that way, bringing in a comm major, bringing in an engineering major, chemistry, biology, um, French major, because sooner or later, everybody's going to be involved in a business, regardless of where your passions are and what you studied. You're going to be working either for a business or creating your own business. So understanding the strategy of business is very important for everybody. And that's why the MBA was created. Mm -hmm. So thinking about it that way, it makes complete sense for anybody with a non-business undergrad to come back and get an MBA. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that makes sense. And, and I would prefer an in-classroom model to an online model. And the main reason is I think that learning experience in that classroom, when you have motivated students in a classroom who have practical knowledge and, and years of experience behind them, 
to have those conversations with the professor. That type of learning experience, you, you can't recreate anywhere else at the undergrad level, the online level. High school level. It, it, it's, it's just, it's so amazing to be in a graduate classroom with students who, who are willing to have a conversation of, hey, this is what I've learned and these are the mistakes I've made. And it just adds to the discussion, allows us to take that education to places that you wouldn't ever think of before. Mm -hmm. And then it allows people to take these abstract ideas like CAPM or time time value of money and be able to attach it to applicable, applicable things in their life. Experience. We, yeah, we experience and they're like, oh, okay, this all makes sense now. This is why I discount future cash flows. And this is why I need to be careful about the discount rate I choose. And, and this is why I should think twice about investing in something that's speculative that really doesn't have any intrinsic value. And, and there's a place for that in a portfolio, but maybe you know crypto isn't the end all be all. Yeah. But it's having the conversation with that person in the classroom who did the crypto investing mm -hmm. and, and wrote it up and wrote it back down and, 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 is, and is giving you their life experiences that helps you to connect the things the professor's talking about with their experiences, with your experiences. So I think a graduate, bu graduate business education has an extremely high potential for a really solid ROI for anybody that that's in a, a reputable, and by reputable, I mean an AACSB MBA program. And, and I understand you're gonna say, okay, there's these for-profit models out there that'll give it to you cheaper, that'll give you credit for your life experiences and stuff like that. And okay, that's fine, but I, I, I think, again, you need to be in the classroom with people that that are there willing to communicate with you, you with them, with the professor about these different ideas, these different concepts, and make them more real, yeah. make them more concrete. So I think at the end of the day, an MBA is is a really good idea for almost anybody out there. Uh, I, there are going to be some people that as an undergrad, they already went through the management strategy. So maybe an MBA may not be the best for them. Maybe an MS in finance or an MS in marketing or, or something more specific since they already have that strategy component that they did as an undergrad. But even for them, coming back and having that, that life experience and then revisiting strategy may also be beneficial. But for me, I, I have, have totally swung the other way from, yeah, you know, Where's the value in MBA to where isn't there a value in an MBA when you approach it the right way? Yeah, and it's difficult to replace that pot of people thinking together and wanting to share their thoughts and experiences together. Um, that is difficult to replace. It's funny, I was just, uh, I just had an event at a high school and this gal spoke up. She was probably 17 years old. And the question that we were going back and forth almost in a debate-like fashion about was uh, most of what college teaches you can be learned online. And this, this gal said, well, when you're talking about online school, I feel like I didn't learn anything when we had high school classes just online. And everybody was like, yeah, like w just all came in at the same time to said, yeah, I didn't learn anything when we had online school. Mm. And I think that highlights what higher education, what education in general really can maybe use to differentiate themselves when people say, well, what's the purpose of an MBA? 
is that pot of people coming together to think about complex problems. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I can see, you know, I think a, I can see where a lot of folks might look at an MBA and say, that's just a bunch of people paying for their perception. It's no different than a kid or the guy saying, hey, I want to buy this nice car so people think about me differently. And I wonder, you know, again, that's where the argument is. There's not much utility in it other than the perception mm -hmm. because there are people that argue against it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I wonder how you would respond to that. You know, if there is any truth in the value of the MBA is more perception-based than it is merit and utility-based, if that makes sense. Yeah, but you could say that about any decisions you make in life, right? If you just want to check boxes, whether it's higher education, whether it's marriage, whether it's the nice car, the nice house, you can check the boxes all you want. But at the end of the day, how empty is your life going to be? There's no purpose. You're just checking boxes and looking for the next box to check. And that's why we were talking about that classroom experience allows that connectivity uh, with your fellow classmates, with the professor, with the curriculum that checking boxes can't give you, right? So yeah. at the end of the day, yeah, you can treat higher education like checking boxes or you can treat it as how, how can I make this a valuable experience for me? Just like anything in life, yeah. whether it's going to a sporting event, whether it's, you know, hanging out with family. Am I just checking? And some days you do just want to check the box, right? Completely understand. Some days you just want to check the box and move on. But m most days, if you figure out, hey, how can I make this work best for me? It's going to be a far better experience. You're going to have a far better day. And at the end of the day, you look back and say, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel somewhat full from what I did today because I wasn't just checking boxes. I was trying to connect to people, to ideas, to, to, to something. And I think that connection is what we need. Wonderful answer. That was actually a, a, a great answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, there is much of life where you can just go through it and check the box. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of teenagers and maybe young folks, uh, that is attractive, mm -hmm. um, where they look at it as, I'm more concerned with what others think about where I'm going and what degree I'm getting versus what is providing the most transformative experience when yep. in reality it's much more how you go to college than where you go to college. Absolutely. Um, I think I might have seen something that you wrote on college tests being removed from the admissions process. And from my understanding, you know, many colleges have removed testing requirements from the admissions uh, just process. And I wonder if that's a good thing. And as colleges then look to, and I know you're not mm -hmm. in admissions, kind of an open-ended question here, but mm -hmm. is colleges then look to evaluate who should come to their school? You know, is it good that that is not a part of the process or does that then leave the college up to deciding how somebody gets into the college more based on other factors that might not actually be in the best interest of society. So I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> yeah, and that's an excellent question because I would say a few years ago, I was on the other side. Uh, when we went into COVID, 
and pretty much every MBA program across the board suspended the GMAT, and and then uh, on the undergrad side uh, suspended the SAT or the ACT. It's you know we don't need this. This is discriminatory. This is, and and you can argue that in the body of the test, the questions they're asking and the material they're using may not be as inclusive as it could be. Okay. Absolutely. But I think anthropologists, I think there's a, a, a lot of smart people that can work on that and make that area better. But I completely right. agree that how the test is given may not be as inclus- inclusive as it could be. Absolutely. But like you just said, if, if you pull away one objective measure, a, a test score, then all admissions are going to do is replace it with another objective measure or give more weight to the other objective measures they have. They still have to decide who because, comes Because, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, even for a, a smaller school like University of Portland, where we have like 4,000 students bringing in 1,000 undergrads, maybe a couple hundred uh, grads every year. So we're talking, you're trying to evaluate 1,200 students that actually come here plus What's the multiple of students that you're also evaluating that are coming here? There, there's too many, even for a small private school, to be more subjective. We would love to be more subjective. I would love to be able, when I was uh, associate dean on the grad side, to just to sit down and have an interview with everybody because you could tell, you can tell within the first minute talking with someone whether this makes sense for them. And for you to have them as a student, because once you bring in a graduate student who flunks out of an MBA program, right? It's really hard. It's so, so once they're in, they're yours and your best marketing campaign. And I tell my students this all the time. Our best marketing campaign is you and your success after you get out of here. So where I add value I try to add value in the classroom. I try to add value in office hours. But where I want you to utilize me the most is when you get out of here. Mm-hmm. Utilize my network. I'll help you reference letters, whatever you need, because the more success you have as a UP grad, undergrad, or, or, or graduate student grad, the more success you have, the better we look. So I need to try to to, to put you out there the best I can because I, I know you're a great student and because we, we've had these conversations and we work together. But that's after the fact where you can be subjective. Beforehand, it's got to be a lot more objective in how you figure out who to bring in. Mm-hmm. And you don't have time to interview everybody. So if you take away an objective measure, then I, I think, and, and that, this was an article I posted on Facebook that from Bloomberg that I think that that's where this, this uh, question came from. You know, they brought up that that it is studies are showing that removing testing is actually hurting underserved populations, mm-hmm. not helping them. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, it's just causing uh, admission councils to look more at okay, uh, what was their GPA and where did they go to un, or where did they go to high school? More and, feelings, intuitive based measures rather than the objective. Yeah, and, more straight line, less biased numbers potentially. Yeah. And what's their um, resume they're look perfect. like? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and how many volunteering and, and nonprofit stuff have they done? How much philanthropy have they done? Well, you know, if, if I'm a poor kid, do I even have time to do philanthropy? I'm probably working two jobs for my family. I don't have any time. And because I'm working two jobs, my GPA is not going to reflect how smart I am because I have to give so much time to earn money for the family. Yeah. So having 
a hopefully inclusive objective testing method that allows students to show, okay, maybe I didn't have the time to devote to school to get the high GPA. Maybe I didn't have the time to do the philanthropy, but I'm smart and mm -hmm. I can prove it if, if you give us a legitimate standardized test that allows me to show that. So I think testing should be involved. Yeah. And I think it's very easy to sit from the sidelines and cast stones at, you know, procedures, processes in basically everything. But, mm -hmm. you know, when the question comes up of, okay, well, what would you do to replace that? It gets a little trickier and you maybe start to see, well, this is actually why we have testing as a part of the process because yep. it's hopefully one of the least discriminatory opportunities exactly. and methods that you have at evaluating a student because mm -hmm it's not as concerned with the feeling-based pieces of, okay, well, is this high school really challenging their kids when we're evaluating their GPA? Or, you know, what's this person's background? And, you know, how much do they actually care about the clubs that they're in? So yeah. it's interesting. Um, so I have a, a couple questions then, you know, kind of uh, a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, one of them has to do with, uh, we'll talk about women in the financial mm -hmm. sphere. Yeah, and absolutely. when I first started, I remember the financial planning office I started at, there was one other female financial planner in the entire office. And I think 12 male financial planners, and then both managers were also males. And, you know, I looked at that and didn't think much of it, but then I got into management and it was incredibly difficult to find females that wanted to work in the office. Yep. And I can understand, you know, from a certain standpoint of like, okay, well, you know, there's 12 other guys that are working here. I would be the only one. Maybe a lot of women just weren't interested in that. But even in the time that I have been working, I've seen those numbers change. The company that I work for now, I mean, has a high percentage of, you know, female financial planners, also female leadership. That's great. And so I've seen that change just in the time that I've been working. But I'm curious at the educational level, because the pathway often starts while they're in college. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you doing to maybe facilitate a more inclusive interest at the education level? Or is it one of those things where it's just, hey, I think maybe, you know, guys just have, you know, more of an inherent interest in finance and that's why there's more there. Is it right. that or is it, hey, there just wasn't as much inclusivity and as much... I guess, speaking to the female audience and there maybe wasn't as much in the workplace and that's why they weren't going there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a loaded <laughs> question, I know, but um, I, I think it's worth exploring. Oh, absolutely, Michael. And, and this is one of the biggest head scratchers as far as trends have, have uh, come along since I've started teaching at the college level. So I've been at UP for basically 20 years now and I, I, I taught even before that at Arizona State and then here at UP, actually, before I went to Arizona State. And I'd say through the first 10, 15 years of my academic, professional academic career, I would it would be close to 50-50, okay, maybe 60-40 men to women in the classroom, but but it was it was close. And if I at any point in time during those first 15 years, if I had to give you a list of my top 10 students, a majority of them would be women. Okay. Absolutely. Um, they were it, it for whatever reason, and we can talk about communication skills, intuition, I, I don't know what it is, but it seemed that women, it, it, at least the women that went through my courses and, and through the other professors' courses understood and could uh, 
relate to finance co concepts better than men at that point in time. And then over the last decade, it has completely flipped to the point where in my class right now, I have 20 students in three or four maybe women, and that's probably high right now. Interesting. And, and it, it, I don't know why finance got broy over the last 10 years, <laughs> but I, I've heard this trend, not just here at UP, but at, at a lot of other higher education institutions where it's like, where did all the women go? Hmm. And I don't know, you know, if they've been dissuaded from, or if it's, you know, I don't want to be in a classroom with a bunch of bros, which I under, completely understand, or I don't want to be in an office with a bunch of yeah. older guys. I don't know what it is, but hmm. one of the main reasons that I joined the uh, financial planning board here in Oregon was we need to increase the participation of women in financial planning. And, yeah. and you can point to, a lot of 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 skills uh, that women have that men may not be as good at that is per that are perfect for a, a financial planner um and th th that's one of my main jobs going forward is is how do we increase the participation of women and then how do we make uh th that that pathway uh more acceptable and and more attractive to everybody not just different genders but everybody of of, of different um backgrounds backgrounds and, yeah. and, and you know we were talking about uh the lgbtq community come on I, there are so many finance is all about growth right we're always trying to find what's the next next growth opportunity we have been an and this is coming from an old white dude. We have been an old white dude dominated industry for way too long and mm -hmm. just trying to grow on the back of old white dudes. Mm -hmm. At some point in time, you need to step back and say, there's so many other different uh, population groups, underserved, served, wealthy, poor, that, that we could reach out to. And yes, yeah, some may not be as efficient monetarily as others, meaning, you know, we know a lot of financial planners won't touch people less than $5 million because right. it doesn't make, but there has to be a way. And we've already brought that up that there, are, uh, finance has become a lot more efficient recently. There has to be a way that we can provide financial planning for everybody out there and not just old, rich, white dudes. Mm -hmm. And, and hopefully we can move in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of it brings up that question of you know how much of it is like societal where uh, you know women are choosing to not do it because of the way that society or culture is currently set up or has been previously set up, and how much of it is innate where you know uh, women have just less of an interest in certain fields than men, and men have less of an interest in certain fields than women, and I can't comment on that because like I'm not you know a, a scientist I don't even know what type of scientist that would be <laughs> I can only share you know my experience with it mm -hmm. and one thing I would share to any female advisors that are considering it is there is an unbelievable opportunity sitting there oh, yeah. I mean they are some of the most successful people in finance I believe the top advisor actually in Oregon is a female she has most assets under management at least last time I checked mm -hmm. and the way that she got there was by doing female events makes sense um, because there's again a shortage of supply there but I've seen it you know at my company uh, there's I'd, I'd like to say you know it's it, it's been a, a trend of you know there's more and more 
But I, I, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that at the education level. Um, you know, that just shows how I'm, you know, a little bit more detached from it that there's been that flip there. Um, but yeah, I think again, if there's one thing I would say is there's plenty of opportunity to any female that is considering getting into that field. Um, on the other side of this, uh, is kind of a different question. We're going to pivot here again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm curious, one of the things that kids have shared at the high school level with me, mm-hmm. um, but also at the college level, but especially at the, the high school level is a feeling of an increasing feeling of needing to self-censor their beliefs or their thought processes Mm. about some subject or some, let's just say, topic. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be, at least from what the data that I've seen, that this is more frequent for conservative-leaning individuals, that they feel like they have to self-censor their beliefs, whether it's in a financial class, it's fit about fiscal politics, or it's about you know something maybe uh, different, uh, more potentially emotionally charged, uh, more around, more subjective, uh, let's just say like gender identity politics yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that, right? Um, but I'm curious, you know, in your classroom when you're talking about finance, and there are conflicting opinions from the different sides, you know, how you manage that as an educator to where kids feel like. I don't have to self-censor my belief. I feel like I'm safe here because, I mean, if you think about it, if you're not really safe giving your opinion in a college lecture hall or a college setting, then where where are you, right? Exactly. So I'm curious, I guess, how you facilitate that if there is that feeling for many students out there. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, I, t- two ways. So number one, I always tell my students, financial analysis has to be as unbiased as possible. If you come into analyzing a situation and its financial aspects and you come in from an area of bias, you're going to miss something. So it's hard for us to be completely unbiased. But when you come into evaluating a project, evaluating an investment, evaluating a country, whatever it is, you have to be as unbiased as possible. And then once you do the analysis, look at the data, and 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 come up with a conclusion and offer that conclusion, you also need to be able to explain the other side because mm-hmm. there's always at least one other side. So if you're saying don't invest in crypto, then you need to come up with a, a reason to why. Mm-hmm. And you need to have both reasons. So you need to understand where both sides are coming from because then that allows you to better help your clients, those clients who are into maybe digital currencies and those clients that never want to touch it, you understand where both's coming from yeah. if you can make up both if, if you can tell both of those stories from a logic perspective. And I I, I wish we were there politically. I, I don't see that. And I know given the demographics of the students in my classes, you you're gonna have those conservative kids that that feel like they shouldn't say something in class because uh, they're I mean, gonna get Portland traditionally liberal. Liberal, town, yeah. And, and uh, I Portland, I completely understand it. Yeah. And, and so that's why I say, you know, okay. There are arguments that fiscal policy may have been too accommodative and and there was potentially too much money given out during COVID by both administrations, Yeah. right? And, but you can talk about it in a way that removes the bias and talks about it from more of an economic or financial impact that that decision had mm-hmm. rather than they were wrong making that decision. Okay, here was the decision. 
that was made, raise taxes, lower taxes, add regulation, take away regulation. Okay, there was the decision. Now let's have the discussion, what's good about that decision, what's bad about that decision. You have to have an open mind in, in the applied portfolio class we continually have those discussions. So you're going to pitch an investment. Also pitch to me why we shouldn't make that investment. Yeah, I, I need to hear both sides. That's a that's a great way to think about it. Complex problems often require complex solutions. Yeah, and you don't learn much from listening to people that share, if anything at all, the same opinion as you. Exactly. And so being able to explain the other side is a really helpful process. Actually, one of the exercises that we have with the high school students, we have complex questions and we'll have kids stand on different sides. One strongly agree, one strongly disagree. And at the end we ask, you know, hey, can you explain the other side? You know, why is it that someone might have a completely different opinion on that side of the fence than you? And you know, just by vocalizing that, you a lot of times find a little bit more truth. You get a little bit closer maybe to the truth just for yourself because again, it, there's just very few absolutes other than maybe like physics and math. <laughs> exactly. Um, and those aren't the things that are talked about. Like nobody's <laughs> saying like, hey, you know, five plus five is actually 11. Like or, we need to have a conversation yeah, about Yeah, we this. need to review friction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah those things, are, you know, are kind of left to be. So I, but I guess one question too off of this is, do you think teachers should share their bias in a classroom? That's a great question. And initially, I would say no. I, I, I never try to give my opinion unless we're talking about college sports and who I may be putting <laughs> money on. Uh, but it, I, I love using uh, sports betting in, in financial analogies. I think it's, it's perfect in yeah. a lot of different ways. But yeah. um, I, initially, I say no. It, is I try to be as impartial as possible. But then you bring up a great point that explaining how you feel and why you feel a that way and why you're taking that side in a discussion can help the students, even if they don't share your belief, understanding why you have that belief. So maybe I should, but I, from day one, I have never given my opinion about yeah. whether you should or shouldn't invest, what side of the aisle you should be standing on. Other than we're if we're talking about human rights, then yes, uh, we need to talk about equality and, and inclusiveness. And absolutely, I, I don't think that should be up for debate. But on on, on the more nuanced subjects, I, I, I try to stay uh, as impartial as possible and and willing to argue on on either side, regardless of what I believe. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's interesting. Like you can learn. I, I really do see both sides of that, where it's like. You know, if you took two classes, you know, one from, let's just say, this is actually one of the classes I took, was science, the philosophy of mind. And we had a neuroscientist oh, wow. and a philosopher, cool. uh, a doctor in philosophy. And, and it was one of the best classes I've ever taken. And oh, essentially, yeah. they offered conflicting thoughts on each of the things we'd go through. The neuroscientist was much more deterministic, right? Things are as they are. It's all predetermined. And the philosophy, uh, the doctor of philosophy was much more there to explain mm -hmm. the reasoning why behind things. And there was a little bit more uh, substance to it than just, hey, it's physics at the end of the day. And it was so... <laughs> It was so wonderful as a student to, to, you know, to go back and forth from that. And so I wonder sometimes, you know, is it better for a teacher to share 
their bias and learn from somebody that has a bias a certain way and then maybe go seek out a bias uh, from some other teacher or some other entity on the other side. You know, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a difficult one, but I tend to lean towards the way of, you know, the educator should hopefully facilitate conversation to, um, you know, explain both sides of each issue. Because, again, most problems are complex that we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about them. Oh, absolutely. Um, so that's, uh, I appreciate your answer on that. That's, that's helpful. How has higher ed changed in the time that you've been teaching? Uh, I, one aspect, and this is what I've tried to learn from the pandemic, is you need to provide more as many communication channels as you can for your students, as humanly possible. Because at almost every class I say, come to my office hours, please come to my office hours. Now I can say, hey, we'll Zoom office hours, which in a finance class, that actually makes more sense because they can share you your their spreadsheets and right. you can look and say, okay, cell C7, let me see that. Okay, I see an issue with your, you wanna check that mm -hmm. uh, equation you have there, recheck that so much easier to do it that way. And, and then with my classes now, I, I Zoom record all my classes and and post them later. So students can go back and go through, if they didn't make it to class or even if they made it to class, they can go back and, and, and look through the lecture and listen through areas that they maybe not didn't quite understand. I think that is a huge benefit of 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 the pandemic is it taught us you have way more communication channels to use than you thought you did i still believe that the in-classroom experience is is more often than not going to be more valuable than a virtual classroom experience but having that virtual component i i think it adds to the value that the student is going to get from taking a class so i think that's one of the biggest changes over the last decade in higher education mm -hmm. is us learning how to use as many different communications channels as as we could. Because before yeah. the pandemic, it was, oh, you got to use modern technology. So, okay, how, how do I use it? And, and it's really, it's old school. It's It gives you another way to communicate. So yeah. as many different ways as you can communicate with the student, you need to use all those different channels that you can. Yeah. And... It's become a tool, whereas, you know, many people I think saw it as potentially a replacement being, you know, the ability to remotely learn. But mm -hmm. I guess if there's one, you know, kind of as I adjust myself in my chair, <laughs> uh, comforting feeling with all of this, it's that we still haven't been able to replace in education, again, the benefit of bringing people together and learning different ideas from each other. Yeah. And that still seems to remain the most powerful form of education. Um, you could make the argument, you know, reading, you can go, you know, I guess, soak up as much knowledge as possible. But what's been difficult to replicate, whether it's for technology or, you know, remote learning, is the ability for us just to perceptively learn from each other in that real world experience. Maybe Meta's got an answer for that that I don't know about. Uh, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, you, you might chime in on that. But last question I have for you. Mm -hmm. um, advice for young folks that are considering a financial degree. We've talked, we've hit on this a, a few times, but to be 
more intentional about it. So there are pathways through finance. Uh, there is the CFA pathway, Charter Financial Analyst, where you are mostly numbers-based, analyst-based, uh, non-relationship. Not not that CFAs don't have relationship, but it's it, it's more dealing with how to model and how to correctly predict what's going to happen in the future and how to how to better utilize data to make decisions. And then you have the CFP path, which has really grown over the last decade to this idea, this holistic idea that you brought up of, hey, we need somebody there that understands the client and can communicate these data models and these different ideas that come out of the data and help the client best understand how to utilize these concepts for them. Um, and and then there's you can go corporate finance, you can go banking. So there, there's all these different pathways. There's far more diversity in finance than a lot of people seem to think. They just seem to yeah. think, okay, it's it, it's a numbers field, and you got to understand math. You got to love math. You got to be a nerd. You got to understand Excel. And I absolutely agree. What I'll, by the end of the, each semester, if if a student is not comfortable with Excel, I feel like I failed in some. <laughs> In, in some manner, I, 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 that is such a great tool um, that once you learn it, it becomes part of your life because then you're able to build your own amortization tables mm -hmm. with, with your mortgages and your car loans and stuff like that. Makes your life so much easier. But there's so much more diversity in finance on what you can do with that degree now than ever before that I, I just think it, it, it can lend itself to any type of person an introvert, an extrovert, mm -hmm. a, 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 a math-focused, arts-focused. I was an art history minor. I wanted to be an art history major. And, and my mom said, uh, if, if you're going to do that, you got to pay for your own yeah, school. So I said, fine, mom, I'll, be, I'll stay in finance. But I was an art history minor. But there's so many aspects of these different fields that seem uh, – so far away from finance, but you can talk about the structure of a painting, just like you can talk about the structure of a portfolio. Mm -hmm. and, and so being able to bring people of all these different backgrounds together, I think finance could be one of the most diverse industries out there as far as the people that come into finance mm -hmm. and the people they serve and how they serve them. I think finance has the ability to be uh, as diverse as we need it to be for yeah. the future. Yeah. A lot of pathways one can take with a financial degree. I will um, add to that. That was the surprise for me on the other side. I did not realize how many communicative, you know, financial roles there were mm -hmm. and how much opportunity there was for people that were just good at explaining the basics of the numbers, yeah. not necessarily the folks that were just, you know, maybe the smartest from an analytics standpoint. Um, Thank you, Brian. Today no. has been wonderful. Happy, wonderful happy. Thank insights. you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.